Hey everybody and welcome to the One Mind Dharma podcast. If you're looking for a guided meditation, I apologize. We're going to move our talks into this one stream and have one stream for talks and meditations. The talks will be labeled talks, the meditations will be labeled meditation. I'm Matthew Sokolov. If you want to find out more about us or find some free meditation resources, you can visit OneMindDharma.com. If you're interested in one-on-one sessions for deepening your practice or bringing mindfulness to daily life, or a bit of just help navigating the stress or maybe a specific issue, you can visit TheMindfulCounselor.me. And uh, that's that. So let's jump into the topic for today. I really want to talk about a couple things. One is this practice of observing experience, really uh, observing in a participatory manner, but not necessarily meddling or needing things to change. And then the kind of second piece of this is observing the whole picture, not just the difficult things. I've noticed recently in meeting with students, uh, talking with friends, and in myself, that we often have a tendency just to uh, kind of notice the places where we could grow, uh, the growing edges, I've heard them called, or the places where the mind isn't doing uh, what we want it to do or behaving in a skillful way. We also have a tendency and I know this is true for myself, especially in meditation practice, um, to find something come up and we jump to a response and not even necessarily a reaction. Maybe it's a wise response. And I wanted to talk about what it means to really observe and be with experience in a way that's non-reactive and at times even non-responsive. We'll talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean. So first we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what the suttas say, what what it says in Buddhism about this practice of observing. Uh, Just a little bit, a little introduction. We'll talk about uh, how this applies to meditation practice, to formal meditation practice. And then of course we'll talk about how to bring this to daily life, what this looks like as far as our day-to-day life, because most of the people that listen to this podcast are not monks or nuns sitting all day in meditation. So my personal practice, and I'll start here, I definitely notice myself noticing kind of what I should or should not be doing, what the mind should or should not be doing, uh, how I can respond better, what the right response is, especially happens with the unpleasant or difficult experiences of the mind or body. When the mind wanders off, when the mind kind of gets agitated or anxious, I often notice, especially in sitting practice, also in daily life, that what happens when I notice these qualities of mind arise, I jump right away to figuring out, to, oh, what does this call for? What do I need in this moment? And what I've noticed in my own practice is I'm actually not sitting with that experience or getting to know the actual experience of uh, the mind wandering or the anxiety or the anger or the 
regret or whatever it may be. Instead, I'm noticing it's there and I'm immediately jumping to figuring it out, to trying to find a solution. And I think in my experience and in my practice, this can actually be a form of aversion, of, of pushing something away. In meditation practice, I'm definitely more likely to notice that the mind is scattered and wandering around than I am to really notice that it's concentrated. And that may or may not be true for everyone. But when the mind's doing what I want or what I'm trying to practice, there's not really a sense of appreciation for it in the same way that there's a sense of kind of urgency when it wanders. The same could be said for my experience in daily life. I notice when I grow angry or frustrated, but I don't notice all the times during the day that I'm not angry or frustrated. In both cases, I'm kind of noticing in my own practice that the difficult or unskillful or unpleasant or whatever word we want to use experiences really come to mind and the absence of them or even the presence of a skillful mental state doesn't quite grab my attention in the same way. And I think that when we look at the practice of compassion, it really means to be with something with our whole attention and, and love and heart. And so this tendency to jump right in when I notice it and try to fix it is often out of aversion. It's not the compassionate response. So I want to start, as I often do, and, and if you're a student of mine or you come to retreats or talks, I love the Satipatthana, the, the Buddha's supposed words on, on the direct path to liberation. I've included a, a link in the show notes to access to insight. This is a translation of it by a monk, Tan Jeff, Tanisarviku. And I just want to point out a few things. So in this sutta, in this teaching, where we're talking about the direct path to liberation, there's sections on the body, the vedana or feeling tone, the mental, mental state, sita, chitta, or mind, and the dhammas. So I want to start with something in the mind section. And how does a monk remain focused on the mind in and of itself? There is a case where a monk, when the mind has passion, discerns that the mind has passion. When the mind is without passion, he discerns that the mind is without passion. When the mind has aversion, he discerns that the mind has aversion. When the mind is without aversion, he discerns that the mind is without aversion. When the mind has delusion, he discerns that the mind has delusion. When it's without delusion, he discerns that the mind is without delusion. Yes, that language is all he, and that's how it's translated. Um, just to note that. But I think something very important here that's often missed, um, both in teachings I've heard and in actual practice, and we'll just take the, the middle example, aversion, wanting things to be different than they are. We notice when the mind has aversion, we discern it, use our wise judgment, and we notice when the mind is without aversion. So part of this whole path and practice 
is actually noticing when the mind is without these qualities that are maybe unskillful or, or skillful for that matter. We can notice when the mind is with loving kindness and when the mind is without loving kindness. There's no instruction uh, in Buddhism here in this path to the direct path to, li to liberation, to developing mindfulness, sati, that says just focus on the places your mind does something wrong and fix it. That's not at all what the teaching is here. The teaching is to notice when the mind is with aversion or without aversion. I think if we, as we spend a lot of time focusing on the, the things that steer us off the path or towards more suffering and noticing them when they arise, we're almost priming ourselves for them. We're building or digging that mental rep. We're wiring our brain just to tune into those things. And I've definitely heard uh, students of my own and on retreats and uh, in groups say, I feel like what this practice has done is made me realize what a jerk I am or some, some form of that, usually not that nice of language. And I think that can be part of the difficulty of practice is we just are focusing on these difficult or unpleasant or unskillful mental qualities or even sensations in the body. When the instruction actually is in this third foundation of mindfulness is to notice when we have aversion or don't have aversion. To observe our experience, not just the difficult parts, but also the parts that are skillful. In the fourth foundation on the section of, of dhammas, it says there's a case where there being sensual desire present within, a monk discerns, there is sensual desire present within me. Or there being no sensual desire present within, he discerns there is no sensual desire present with me. So these instructions clearly tell us not just to notice the things that bring us suffering, but also the state of minds that are wholesome. It's part of how we water those seeds. We want to water the seeds of seeing clearly we notice when delusion is present or it's not. We want to water the seeds of kindness. We notice when loving kindness is present or it's not. So that's just one piece here is just to not, I encourage you as you practice to not just focus on the, the difficult things, but to make a note when the mind is uh, concentrated. Make a note when the mind is at ease or expansive. In the fourth foundation, it also reads, the monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the Four Noble Truths. And how does he remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the Four Noble Truths? There's a case where he discerns that this is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is a cessation of stress. And this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. So there is a bit of a calling here. What this means, in my opinion, is to, uh, there's a calling here to kind of note the arising of these experiences. And we'll use the example of uh, aversion. And we have, say, a sensation in our body. Um, maybe it's a, something itches and we want to scratch it. And we notice it come up. We notice the origination of stress, the, the desire to get rid of it, the aversion. We can notice the cessation of stress by allowing that aversion just to be, 
not pushing it away, not needing to change anything, not even necessarily scratching it, and know what, what brings about that change, right? Meeting it with the Eightfold Path, with mindfulness and energy and right view and effort. So the instructions are pretty clear in the actual Satipatthana. If you're interested in that, in that teaching, there's a great book by Bhikkhu Analyo. I think it's just called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. Um, and it's an incredible book. He wrote, he wrote his thesis, a PhD thesis, I believe, um, and then published it as a book just on the Satipatthana, on this one teaching. But the instructions are very clear, right? Observe the arising and passing of these experiences. When we have the difficult mental states or difficult experiences in the body, notice them coming up, but also notice as we tune into them, notice them passing. When we have wholesome mental states, like a concentrated mind or energy in our practice, notice them come up and that they're present, and also notice that they may not stay. Notice as they dissipate. I was recently, just last week, sitting uh, in a park in Mexico City meditating, which was a whole new experience for me, just a little bit louder than I was used to. Um, and I had recently, one of the books I always return to is Food for Thought by Ajahn Chah. Reading an Ajahn Chah book, I thought I'm going to do a meditation specifically noticing this, uh, this ability or not to let go how um, experience arises or passes, and to watch for the clinging to it or the letting go, and try to really tune into them arising and passing. And just given where I was and where I was sitting um, in a beautiful park, I, there was a lot of noise, a little bit more noise than I was used to uh, where I live. I noticed the sounds of people walking on the dirt and gravel there were airplanes and helicopters that passed by. There were squirrels. I could hear squirrels eating nuts in the trees. Um, and I really was a clear example, like as someone walked by, of noticing the arising of this experience, of listening, of the kind of mental formation around it. And then also noticing the passing. It was a really clear example of, oh, this sounds arising into my awareness. And oh, here it goes as they walk farther away. I also noticed, of course, that although I was sitting in an open awareness practice, that the mind became really contracted at times, especially around sounds I found unpleasant. That had an unpleasant feeling tone for me, like the sound of low-flying helicopters. Um, just was a little bit like abrasive or something to me. And I noticed how when somebody walked by, I kind of just was able to listen to their feet on the gravel, maybe even have a bit of empathy as I understand I've done walking meditation in that same park. And I know that sound and that feeling. And the mind was kind of open and expansive. But when the helicopter went over, I noticed my mind really contract around it, really kind of get stuck in it, and the mind started going with thoughts. And then I would also notice as another sound came up that contracted mind kind of release and release back into open awareness, into 
what's often called expansiveness. And that's the practice, just observing, not needing for it to be different. But noticing this kind of uh, difficult experience of the contracted mind and difficulty around an abrasive noise as it arrived and passed. The helicopter wasn't hovering over me in this case. And also noticing the, how it kind of gave way into a more, uh, a different quality that's a little bit more wholesome in that, in that scenario of an expansive mind. So not just noticing and observing the difficult part, but also observing how it feels and what the experience is like of the uh, more pleasant mental state. I have a, there's a teacher, Dave Smith. There is a teacher, Dave Smith. He's still around. Um, and I was sitting on retreat, I think, one time. And he said something along the lines of, always stuck with me. I spend the first five minutes of every meditation period trying to convince myself not to meditate. I have better things to do. Uh, and it takes a little while for the mind to settle. And I remember hearing that. It was one of my earlier, probably 10 years ago now, one of my earlier meditation retreats and thinking, oh, me too. Like, I know that feeling. And the truth is, it's such, it's, that's still true for me. Like, I still go to sit in meditation and it takes time for the mind to settle. I don't close my eyes and the mind's like, oh, nice, meditation time. Let's be calm and perfect. It's not how it works. So, but it does offer an interesting practice in this, right? As we meditate, I can notice, oh, look, my mind's beginning to settle. Like the example of a snow globe that's been shaken up, I can kind of feel all the little snowflakes or glitter or whatever begin to settle. That it's so easy in practice often to notice that the mind is not settled, that the mind, we have monkey mind going on. But we can also observe the experience of, oh, the mind settling and the body settling too, for that matter. I think one of the hard parts is just observing it, right? Just observing, oh, the mind is bouncing around right now. Not needing to jump in right away and do something or fix it or beat ourselves up. Because there's a piece here then we go back to the Buddha's instructions and what I found useful for myself is that just by observing it, that is the practice. We're familiarizing ourselves with it. We're getting to know it. I sat one of the 30-day the retreats at Spirit Rock uh, however many years ago, seven or eight years ago. And I remember like I don't, I don't know how far in, I'll say halfway, I was meeting with my teacher on that retreat, James Barris, and I honestly don't remember what I was saying. Probably super over-analytical, trying to figure something out to him. And he said, I think your practice right now needs to be just observe your experience. Those, uh, those thoughts and trying to figure things out and trying to find the best solution and trying to relate it back to the teachings in your head during meditation practice. That doubt, that's the hindrance of doubt. So just for now, until next time I see you, which was three or four days later, just practice just observing. 
just observing your experience. And I think I probably sighed and rolled my eyes. Um, and I had an and I had a quite amazing um, insight during that during that those three or four days. Of wow, when I just observe my experience, it's almost as if the mind body wants to respond in a skillful way. I don't have to make a huge effort all the time, especially, and I'm talking specifically about sitting practice right now, and I think this is also true a little bit in daily life, but we'll get there. But especially in sitting practice, most things aren't going to cause us harm. There are definitely cases um, where I or other people may be sitting and some trauma may come up or they may get their nervous system activated, and it may be the best thing to take a step away in that moment. But for the most part, for the majority of the time, and it's up to you to decide when that is, for the most part, we have the ability to sit with something. When we do just sit with it, it's really crazy how it kind of, uh, we're, we're able to detach from it a little bit more. I remember on that retreat, saying something like that to James uh, of like, wow, just watching things and not like trying to figure out what the wise way to respond is, actually find myself responding or yeah, responding um, with more wisdom than I was when I was trying to figure it out. So I think the question in sitting practice is, are we looking for the way to respond to something just out of aversion? Or what's our intention there? One of the examples I have in my practice is sometimes I'm doing a concentration practice, observing the breath. And I notice that uh, like the breath begins to go a little bit more quickly. There's that instruction of not controlling the breath, but just observing it naturally. And man, I try sometimes. And sometimes I just start breathing quicker and then I have to breathe, make effort to breathe more slowly. And it just becomes a mess where my whole experience is trying to control my breath and there's very little mindfulness or awareness of what's going on. On the other hand, when I notice, oh, my breath's started speeding up like that. Let's see how that feels. Oh, it's uncomfortable and, and I don't really love that. And Oh, I want to do something to get rid of that. You know, some aversion arises. I want to take some deep breaths to get rid of that. Often, just by noticing it really mindfully like that, the breath naturally kind of softens. There's also the piece that like sometimes we do Sometimes jumping in is, is the answer. I think of uh, Jack Cornfield. This is like a famous saying in the insight world, and I'm about to butcher it. But uh, he says that when we're practicing and, and the mind wanders off and we bring it back, it's like training a puppy uh, to go potty on the little pee pad thing. We train them the puppy runs off and we bring them back gently. 
if we bring them back and uh, kind of yell at them or harsh with them, we're not really teaching them. We have to bring them back gently. And sometimes that's what we need to do. A really simple example is the, the itches we sometimes get during meditation. I personally often try to just sit through them and observe them. But when I do scratch, I notice every step of the process, right? I notice the, the aversion, I notice the intention to scratch, uh, the wish to scratch before I actually start moving anything. And then I move my hand, arm, as slowly as possible and really kind of tune into both what I'm feeling in my body and that kind of anticipation of the scratch being done. Yesterday morning I was meditating doing a concentration practice here at home and the mind was just super scattered and I kept bringing awareness to it. I think I didn't look at uh, a timer or anything, but you know, 10 or 15 minutes went by and the mind was really scattered. And I did decide to mindfully switch to a bit of a labeling practice of in and out instead of just focusing on the sensation. So I do think there are times that we need, it, what's called for is to jump in and give ourselves some aid or some support. But when we do that, we can do it with mindfulness and recognize if we're doing it out of cultivating mindfulness or we're just kind of falling into the old habit energy of aversion. Joseph Goldstein says, every time we become aware of a thought, as opposed to being lost in a thought, we experience that opening of the mind. So when these difficult things come up, the in meditation, the itches or the quickening of the breath or the mind wandering or anxious mind or monkey mind, we can be aware of it, observe it. I often find my thoughts when I'm anxious are quite funny. Bring some lightheartedness to it even and give ourselves a little bit of credit of noticing, oh wow, like I'm, there's an observation of the anxious mind happening right now. Not just noticing that, oh, we're anxious, there's anxiety present, what do I do? But also noticing, oh, I'm present with this. This is what being present with anxiety feels like. So I encourage you in your practice to really try to notice or, or tune into where do you try to fix things out of aversion? Where is the mind acting skillfully and what's that experience like? And moving on to this pragmatic piece or in daily life, as we practice like this, we get to know these experiences as we observe them more deeply without needing to fix things. We have a different response as part of the byproduct. My, my wife, who many people on this podcast have heard or know, Elizabeth, had a, uh, had a like 30 centimeter tumor removed from her leg a little while, a couple, couple months ago now, a month and a half ago, and had to go for radiation and uh, bunch of treatments and tests and everything. And unfortunately, where we live, there was no specialist 
Um, so that's she went to Mexico City to do it, and I was there with her with the whole with our kids and everything during the surgery and for a little bit after, and then we had to get the kids back to go to school. So she stayed there for radiation, and I came back, and then I went back for the last week. But it was hard for for both of us. I want to talk about my experience here. And I had no means, in no way, mean to imply that mine was. My experience was worse than hers or anything like that. But just talking about my personal experience here, it was hard, right, to watch my wife go through, my partner go through this surgery, this cancer diagnosis, uh, the radiation, to be away. She was away from home for seven weeks, away from the kids for a ton of time. She'd never been away from the kids that long. Um, and to know she's going through all, you know, like I was there for the surgery, but she was going through radiation by herself. And in the midst of all that, the kids got hand, foot, and mouth disease, which wasn't so, like, wasn't so bad, not, not really dangerous, but covered in sores and a fever. They couldn't go to school for two weeks. So I was home alone with them for a few weeks with two sick kids and my wife a couple of hours via plane away. And it was really tough and really difficult. No way around it. And when I talked to people, it was really interesting to to hear the responses that I got or the the way compassion arose. And I think everybody did the best that they could and and meant everything out of compassion. I have an amazing uh, family and and friends and friends that are like family and just an amazing support group. But so many people said, oh, we only have three more weeks till she comes home. Or, At least they got the whole tumor. Oh, she's getting the best care possible. All of these things are true, and I think the intention was to, to cheer me up. But the truth is it didn't really impact how much it, how painful it was, how much it, how difficult it was, how much it sucked, which is not the most eloquent way to say it, but how much it sucked. It was just a difficult situation. There was no real answer or way to solve it, right? I did everything I could. She did everything she could. We did lots of research. We made sure she was getting the best care. Um, we did what we thought was best for the kids and, and took good care of them. We prepared the best we could, but it still was just difficult. And I did a lot of uh, compassion practice all around for myself. Um, her mom went to visit her at one point and just compassion for her mom watching her daughter go through this this diagnosis and treatment and of course self-compassion and what I noticed during these seven weeks was that in this case self-compassion really meant just being with it and observing it and not trying to change it and it was born from my meditation practice right that noticing myself, you know, I need to like, what can I do to make this better? What can I do to make my experience not so difficult in this moment? And of course, there's the teaching of the two arrows, that the first arrow is the experience itself, and the second arrow is the layer of suffering we add on top via uh, greed or craving, aversion or hatred and delusion. So of course, there's that. But the reality of this situation is that in this moment, for these weeks, there is this difficult experience. And I should get to know 
what that experience is like. How does that experience feel when I'm meeting it with aversion and trying to figure it out? How does it feel when I meet it with compassion and just being with it with some level of uh, equanimity? What I found, of course, was that it just was difficult and also that it wasn't difficult in every moment. I had a lot of fun. I had a ton of fun with the kids. It was incredible bonding time. When I did get to go to Mexico City to be with her, we had a ton of fun. We went to tons of parks with the kids and children's museums and did all kinds of things. So not just focusing only on the bad or difficult, not trying to figure out how to fix. And it was a learning process through those weeks, but really tuning into what my experience was like. What does it feel like when I meet it with compassion and, and true attention and awareness? Right, Thich Nhat Hanh said the most uh, precious gift we can give another is our true attention. Probably butchered that quote too, but the most precious gift we can give someone is our awareness or attention. And I think it's true for ourselves, right? The most kind and loving thing we can often do for ourselves is just be present for it. What does this feel like? What's difficult? Where's my mind going? What do I feel in my body? I don't need to change those thoughts. It's a difficult experience to go through. And to also recognize that it wasn't all bad. Even though it was a difficult experience, there were pleasant moments, right? Tons of them. Sometimes we really just can benefit from observing the process of what the mind and body are doing in heart and get to know it. It decreases reactivity. It decreases my need to, you know, sometimes we react by wanting to get rid of something, right? We change the scenario. In my experience or in these kind of uh, specific cases, the mind reacts by um, wanting to fix or figure out. And it takes a little bit of faith to just observe. It takes a little bit of trust in the path and in ourselves to say, I'm just going to observe it. I'm not going to try to fix it. We have a four-year-old who gets angry, like humans do. And uh, while I had my parents here for a little bit, while I went to go to Mexico City to be with Elizabeth, and we overlapped for a couple of days, and at one point he got angry and stormed upstairs and said, I'm angry. Shut his door. My parents said, why is he going upstairs? Like, why, why is he doing that? And I was like, that's... No complaint. That's lovely. He knows he's angry. He exclaimed it rather loudly, but he didn't slam doors. He went upstairs. I don't really know what he does up there. Often reads a book or something like that, plays with the toy, and he comes back when he feels uh, that he's calm. It's beautiful. It's something that, honestly, I wish I could do still. Um, but we had to teach him, and Elizabeth was very helpful, it wasn't just me by any means, we had to teach him to recognize when he's angry, right? To really observe it and get to know it. What do you feel or what, what's going on? Going back to my point of the pleasant or skillful, we also had to teach him when he's calm. Because often what he would do is be like, okay, I'm calm now, and he's still crying and like upset. So we had to kind of give him some questions or, or uh, encourage him to observe when he's calm. Two of the things he often says that make him 
realize he's calm is he says he breathes slower when he's calm and he doesn't feel angry in his arms. So if you've experienced anger or rage or anxiety, you know you can get that body feeling, that like energy or buzziness. I know feel it in my arms. Perfect. That's great. So by observing the absence of these experiences, by observing their passing, that's how he knows when he's calm. So again, whether it's meditation practice or daily life, observing our experience to really get to know it like this so we can use that information. I think that as we observe things, it gives us some agency. I've heard Tan Jeff say that karma is the idea that uh, what we do today dictates the choices or options that will be available to us in the future. It gives us some power, some agency to really know when we're angry or when we're calm. It gives us the choice in how we respond. And of course, it, it's the relationship, in my opinion, between meditation and daily life. Meditation absolutely can lead to beautiful and, and in, powerful insights, but it's also a practice of cultivating something that we can use in daily life as lay people. By meditating and observing both the pleasant and unpleasant or the neither pleasant nor unpleasant experiences and getting to know them, it's giving us the option to kind of see things in slow motion in my experience. I can see the, the anxious thoughts kind of rolling and tune into them rather than them kind of taking me for a ride. I've told this story many times before, but um, one year I was about to go to Thanksgiving with my family. And Thanksgiving's often been uh, a stressful experience for me. Just, uh, just, yeah, stressful. It doesn't even entirely matter why. Um, and I was in the shower getting ready to go to Thanksgiving and I noticed that like, oh, this kind of feeling of like, here we go, like into Thanksgiving, stress and horrible and I, I hate it and all that stuff. And I noticed myself thinking this and kind of had this like paying attention to the thoughts and it was a little bit funny, like it was a little bit... Uh, wow, this is an intense response to nothing having happened. And granted, I've had some experiences at Thanksgiving that have been stressful, but nothing traumatic or, or too painful. So just by noticing that the mind was doing this and I was growing tense, I had the option to kind of see it in slow motion, laugh a bit at it, and say, maybe I'm going to leave this story, just let it go, let it be, and approach Thanksgiving with an uh, open mind and heart and not allow my past experience in this case just to dictate my current experience. By observing and knowing these thought patterns and this experience in the body, I'm able to choose how I respond a little bit differently. Like, oh, just let it arise and let it pass. I don't need to hold on to that and, and make it part of my identity. I do think sometimes we are going into a situation that we are going to feel uncomfortable. It is going to be difficult. 
So I don't think that we can always just let it go and leave it be. Sometimes those those difficult emotions or thoughts stick around and we can notice that too in the same way bring mindfulness to it just by bringing mindfulness to it we're not being quite so reactive and stop ourselves from causing further suffering on ourselves or on others and again not to fall into praise or blame too much but to recognize in that moment that wow we're being mindful of it we're being mindful of this experience. There's the mental quality of openness, of investigation. There's energy. I often think too, I notice in my formal practice that when I sit with something really difficult and I'm really mindful of it, I find that it actually the experience is changes a lot whether or not I have aversion. And I don't think it's, uh, it's a scale, right? It's not aversion or no aversion, but the level of aversion. When I'm super aversive, that experience is kind of just like, makes my mind race and kind of uh, harsh thoughts. Whereas when I have less aversion and true mindfulness and openness to experiencing it, I'll often notice the experience in the body. I'll notice like a little bit of a pattern in the thinking. I don't think that we should just be mindful and behave poorly either, right? Punching someone in the face mindfully isn't really mindful because that fourth foundation of mindfulness is to be aware of the, if this is leading to suffering or liberation. We also do need to know when we need to change. And maybe what that change, mindfulness can help us know what that change is. When I'm riled up, I know that taking a walk is one of the best things. I often feel like just hiding under the covers, whether I'm anxious or angry, but taking a walk and moving helps my body settle so much more peacefully or more calmly with, a, with less kind of tension. So I think these are things we can all bring to both our practice, meditation practice, and our living, everyday practice. To observe experience and really get to know it. To know what it's like with or without aversion, or with or without desire, or with or without delusion. To really observe the experience and not try to fix it necessarily. And to also notice the cessation, the arising and the passing of these experiences of the difficult and the pleasant ones. For me, the noticing the fixing mind is a bit of an awareness trigger. It makes me go, oh, something's going on here. Let's tune in. So I encourage you in your practice, again, daily life and meditation practice, to take a look at where you fall into trying to fix or figure something out and try to just observe the experience. Try to observe the fixing or figuring out itself. As you're practicing, notice when the mind is scattered or when it's concentrated. Notice when you're anxious or not anxious. Notice when you're riled up or at ease. Not just the unpleasant ones, but get to know the pleasant ones or the skillful ones as well. 
and see what it does for you. See how you can perhaps give yourself that little gap to not react and be able to respond kind of naturally. So I appreciate you listening. If you have any questions, you can reach out at onemindharma.com slash contact. Always happy to answer questions. You can also visit the mindfulcounselor.me for individual sessions. My WhatsApp is on there if you'd like to send messages, fast way to get a hold of me and have a conversation. And if you have any questions or topics you want covered, please feel free to reach out. Thank you.